John 4, 1 through 15. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The book of John records some of like the most personal conversations Jesus has. So as we've been walking through John 1 and John 2, John 3, John 4, we've seen some of these close interactions that Jesus has had. It's like all small talk is skipped. And Jesus goes right to some of the most important things in life. These conversations that Jesus has, particularly the one that Jamie read this morning, these conversations actually change lives. I think if we'll listen today, God may do something in our life as well. As we process this conversation, I want us to think of it kind of in two parts. So the the first part of this conversation is going to be about thirst and water. And then the second part of the conversation is going to be about worship. Kind of right in the middle of that conversation about thirst and that conversation of worship, right in the middle is this hinge that's so, so important. But before we even dive into the conversation, there is like some beginning information that Jesus or that John gives us about Jesus and his travels. So before John tells us the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, he gives us an indication that geographically, it really never had to happen. So as a matter of fact, what what we're told in that time is that a lot of Jews for racial and prejudicial reasons would not even go through Samaria when they wanted to go north to Galilee. They didn't even want to go in the country of the people that they despised. And so they would go all the way around and, and kind of take an alternate route. So geographically, it was possible that this conversation would never happen. 
But the Bible tells us spiritually it had to happen. That's what verse 4 says. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had a divine appointment schedule. And so Jesus is weary. The, the Bible says it's the sixth hour, which basically is around noon. Since his disciples are going into town to buy food and Jesus is alone and he approaches a well and we're told there is a person at the well and verse 7 says the person at the well is both a woman and a Samaritan and that, as far as a, a Jewish male, that does not put her on kind of the upper rungs of the social ladder, being a Samaritan and being a woman. But Jesus initiates a conversation with her, doesn't he? And it's just something very, very simple. He says, give me a drink. And it launches a conversation, this idea of drinking and water and thirst. It, it launches a conversation that I want us to follow. But, but the Samaritan woman is caught off guard. She says, like, how is it that you, a Jew, are, are even talking to me? You're asking a drink from me. I'm a Samaritan. I, I'm a woman. And Jesus says this interesting thing in verse 10, if you have your Bible still open. She has no idea where this is going to go, but Jesus says, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it was, it was making this offer of living water. Then kind of the provocative statement for Jesus is like, then actually I wouldn't be the one asking for water. You'd be the one asking me for something. And of course, I'm not sure that the woman at the well is processing all of this, but Jesus has introduced the subject of living water, and he's going to use that as an analogy, not just of like magic water, but water that gives life, water that gives like real life. And I think the question he is driving the woman to answer is this, are you getting satisfaction out of life? When he brings up the subject of living water, he's asking, are you getting satisfaction out of your life? Are your needs being met? Are your desires being met? Are you surviving? Are you thriving? Is life giving what you expect? I believe that is worth us thinking about today. Are we getting satisfaction out of our life, regardless of what age you are in this room today? Regardless of what status you may hold or not hold? Regardless even of the religion you may claim. I mean, you may, you may not even claim to be a Christian. Is life giving you everything you expect it to give? It's a powerful, powerful statement when he says, if you knew... If you knew that God is going, God would give you this gift free, and if you knew that it was living water, and if you knew who it was that was really offering, well, then the conversation would go a very different way. They go back and forth on this, but when it comes to living water, when it comes to satisfaction, Jesus is like pressing, and, and they, they exchange ideas and questions and answers. But a lot of those questions kind of fly around the subject of source, so if we're talking about satisfaction in life, a question might be, who or what can give that satisfaction in life? Who can give it? And Jesus is telling her, I'm the one who can give it. And she at first doesn't really buy into that. She has questions. She's not sure. So she says, can you really do that? I mean, are you greater than Jacob who, who dug this well? 
You're saying you can give living water. I mean, no disrespect, but who are you? And Jesus repeatedly, again and again, he goes back. He says, you don't even realize who you're talking to. But in verse 14, twice he says, I am the source. I am the one who can give living water. You might look in a lot of places for satisfaction out of, out of your life. You may go to a lot of different sources. He says, all of those are going to run dry. There's only one source that can give you complete satisfaction with your life. So he brings up the subject of source of satisfaction, but not just the source, but also the cost. Like, what is it going to cost me to know in my heart I'm satisfied? And that seems like a big thing to ask. That I would wake up tomorrow completely satisfied with my life. That, that I would know everything's good, everything's taken care of. And it seems like if I'm going to expect that, then I'm going to have to work pretty hard for that. And yet Jesus says something very counterintuitive. And, and he says the cost of this kind of satisfaction, actually the cost of it, there is no cost. There is no cost. It's a gift. It's only a gift. It's, it's something that I will give. We, we think things like this you have to earn. And he says that's not the way this will work. There's the source and there's the cost. But when he is speaking of what it means to have living water, it's like, what are the effects of that? What are the effects of of having living water? What will this living water do for me and do in my life? And and I love what Jesus does here because what Jesus does is he uses like what's right there present and he says, and he I imagine he might have even gestured to the well. And he says, look at Jacob's well. The fact is, the fact is, dear lady, you're going to be going back to this well again and again for a long, long time. You're going to have a need regularly. So this kind of well, you're going to have to keep going back and back and back to. And I wonder if the light bulbs started going off for her as maybe it does for us. There, there are many things that we go to and we think, you know, if I just had that, then I'd be completely satisfied. But then we get that and we're not. If I just got that promotion, if I just had this family situation resolved, then everything would be good. Or we, we, we kid ourselves and say, you know, all I need is just one more and then I'll be fine. But then we're not. Jesus is telling us there are wells that you're going to go to in your life and you're going to go back again and again and again. And you're going to have to keep going back. But he says, what I'm offering you is something where you will never be thirsty again. You'll never have your thirst go unquenched. As a matter of fact, what I am offering you, actually your whole life will be a spring of living water, so much so that you might be a fountain of blessing to other people. So when, when the woman at the well hears this, I, I wonder if she's processing it, it all and understanding it all, but, but her reply in verse 15 is like, sure, okay. I don't know that she's entirely serious. I don't know that she's sarcastic. I think she's just, hey, if you're telling me you can give me living water, if you're telling me you can give me a life much better than I've known, if you're telling me it's going to cost me nothing, then I'm in. Why not? 
seems like she's willing to, let's, let's go with that. Why not? But then there is the hinge. For those of you who are familiar with this story in the Bible, and it's a pretty familiar story, you know exactly where this conversation goes. Because in verse 16, it kind of comes out of the blue. But Jesus says to her, Okay, why don't you do this? Can you go and call your husband and, and, and come back here? And immediately when Jesus mentions her husband, the conversation has changed. Because Jesus is putting his finger on something she has been looking to to quench her thirst to get satisfaction out of life. How do we know that? Well, verse 17, the woman answered him, I don't, I don't have a husband. She's ready with that answer. I don't, I don't have a husband. I can't, I can't go and call him. And Jesus takes kind of this flimsy deflection and says, you are absolutely right in saying you don't have a husband. But you've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. So you're saying exactly the truth. In that moment, I wonder what she felt. She's been looking for something, and Jesus knows it. I I don't know why, the, the five husbands, but everything in reading this story, every bit of background tells us, like, there's no reason for a woman to be at the well at noon Women came to the well in the morning or in the evening, not at this time. Was she going because of being a, a social outcast? Is, surely there's a backstory. Surely she's looking. I, I, I don't know what it is. It doesn't identify. But is it some sort of approval or some sort of relationship? Or is it some sort of security that another man, another man, another man might bring her in her life? Jesus puts his finger on something in her life. He puts his finger on the exact thing she'd rather not talk about. And and what I'm convinced of today is that Jesus still does these sorts of things. If Jesus were asking these questions of me, if it were just him and I at the well together, if it were just him and you at the well together, I don't know everybody's backstory, but I'm I'm guessing he's not going to bring up like five spouses and uh, a current live-in. He wouldn't have brought that up for me. But I wonder if he would look and ask some other questions. I wonder if he would ask one of those revealing questions like, hey, uh, what's been on your mind a lot lately? And in that instant, I kind of do a mental, like the time log of what's been going on in my mind. And what's been going on in my mind is an obsession about something. Maybe it's not even a bad thing. But it's become something that I am constantly, constantly, constantly thinking about. It's requiring more and more energy. I'm making more and more sacrifices. And it's causing my, my life to just get all out of kilter. Or what if Jesus were to ask the question of you like, how, how have you been sleeping recently? 
And instantly, you know, in that moment, I mean, you could lie, but, but, you, but you are talking to someone who put his finger on something and, and you'd have to answer honestly, I actually haven't been sleeping that well because my heart and my soul is just this overcrowded jungle of worry or anxiety. And I, I can't, I can't, my, my life is just in a tailspin right now. Or I wonder if he would ask you or ask me, hey, before we go any further, can we just talk about your internet history? Can I take a look at that? Or can I look at your, your call log or your text log? And instantly you know, like, I mean, you could do a flimsy thing like she did and say, well, yeah, I didn't look at anything bad yesterday. But then you know that the five weeks before, you were in the gutter all the time. Or maybe he might ask, can, can, I, can I see your credit card statement? And that credit card statement would just account for a life of buying things you really cannot afford to buy but you desire some sort of comfort or some sort of approval or recognition that you've, you've spent way more. And you, you, you knew this wasn't. You knew this wasn't sustainable. You knew this wasn't right. Or maybe Jesus would say, can, can we go home to dinner to talk about this? And instantly, you don't want to do that because you know there's going to be someone at that table or someone not at that table, and it's going to be a, a cause of great pain to you in your life. Or maybe he says, can, can we look in this particular cupboard or this particular drawer, and in that is a stash of things you certainly would want nobody at church to know about, no one close to you to know about, but it's all too present. Or maybe he asked you about the email you sent, and if we flash that email up, that email would, would look exactly like it is. It would be awful, and yet you sent it, and it's full of arrogance and self-righteousness and pride and maybe gossip, and, and you would not want anybody to read that. In, in, but, but yet Jesus knows, and he identifies it, and he, he sees it. Or maybe he just names the date, and he said, can, before we go any further, can we talk? And he names this month and this day and this year, and that's the day where you begin to question whether God is really good. You begin to wrestle with your faith. You see, Jesus has a way of putting his finger on some things that, oh, we might give flimsy excuses, but they're not going to hold. They're not going to hold. And we know it. We know it. And he knows it. But as that spotlight comes on our life, I mean, it's one thing to read about the woman at the well, but when that spotlight, we start to feel it. And we start to, to feel exposed by the Lord. We need a reminder and that reminder is this. When Jesus is talking to this woman at the well, we could easily have in our mind that he is some sort of vindictive prosecuting attorney. That what he's really trying to do is humiliate and embarrass her by calling out the one thing that she doesn't want to talk about. Maybe he's just trying to score some cheap, dramatic, you know, response as he exposes her for who she really is. 
But if you think that's exactly what's going on here, you, you've actually missed an important part of who Jesus is. Because as he is naming exactly what is going on, as he is exposing you and me right now, as he knows what's in our heart, he knows what we've done this past week, he knows what happened five or ten years ago, even as he shines the light on that and there's no room to hide, he doesn't do so as some vindictive prosecuting attorney. No, actually, he is the one that is going to bleed and suffer and die for women like, like this woman at the well. He's going to be the one that is going to die for people like you and people like me that have no room to hide, nowhere to go. He's the one that's going to do it, not out of exasperation, but Hebrews 12 will say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So he loves us too much to not shine the light on things that are ruining and wrecking our lives. He loves us too much just to pretend that never happens. But even in the midst of that, it is a a God who loves us. So the question I, I ask, and the question that woman had to answer that day is, do I trust Jesus to go that deep in my life? Or am I going to put up walls and try to cover and hide so that, I, so that I don't feel so exposed. What happens if I'm this exposed before Jesus? What if there is no pretense? What if there's like no, no plan of good behavior so I can get off of these charges or no status that I can earn in the fact that I've, I've kind of demoted myself? What, what do I do? What if I truly am at the mercy of Jesus Christ? Well, what that woman found out that day And what I desperately want you to know today is that when you are at the mercy of Jesus Christ, it is that mercy that welcomes you, that invites you. It's that mercy that says you don't have to cover up. It's that mercy that will change you from who you've been to who you were made to be. It's that mercy that will drive us to live a life of worship, not out of dutiful obedience to try to kind of pacify or work off our our, our bad deeds. But we live a life of worship. As a matter of fact, talking of worship, that's exactly where this conversation goes. I, I don't think she's quite ready to, like, entrust her heart to Jesus, and so she does exactly what I would do, and that's like, let's change the subject. And she's pretty smart about changing the subject. So she, first of all, offers Jesus a compliment. She says in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she brings up like a controversial subject. So she says, could we talk about religion a little bit and some differences? Because our fathers... You know, the Samaritans say we ought to worship on this mountain, but your people say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this was a hotly debated topic. This is like talking about religion and politics. Sure enough, going to ruin a Thanksgiving dinner all the time. You know, so she's going to just deflect, like maybe we can get in a discussion about that so that we don't have to talk about husbands anymore. But when she brings up the subject of worship, that's the subject Jesus loves to talk about. She wants to distinguish places in worship. She wants to say, who exactly has it right here? I'd be interested in your take, Jesus. 
we're, geographically, where should we go? Like, what's the formalities that are the right formalities? And Jesus says to her in verse 21, it's not about formalities or the places of worship. Jesus said to her, dear woman, believe me, you can trust me on this, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, you, you're worshiping what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But here is the real question of worship. The real question of worship is this. Are you living your life in devoted allegiance to your heavenly Father? That's the question. It's not about this mountain or that mountain. The question is, how are you living your life? Is it in worship to the Lord? If, if our Heavenly Father is eternal, if he's not like bound by 80 or so years on this planet, but he goes from eternity past to eternity future, and if our Heavenly Father is omnipotent, he doesn't just rule over like a, a zip code in Delaware, but he rules over the nations. And if our Heavenly Father is all-wise, knowing the best goals and the best way to achieve those goals. And if our Father is abounding in steadfast love and mercy, then it's not about formalities. It's not about which place do we go. It's not about technicalities. And Jesus is telling this woman, it is about whether your heart is in full devotion to our Heavenly Father. Speaks of a relationship with our Father. And there is true worship. In this verse, in verse 23, Jesus says there are true worshipers. And those true worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. And he says the Father's not neutral on this. The Father is seeking those who will worship him in this way, in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in truth. It's not about going to temples and it's not about sacrifices and animals and priests. It's about spirit and truth. So only true worship offered to God will come through, through the spirit. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit. God will do something through his spirit and in our spirit. If you're going to worship God, it will only come through the Holy Spirit revealing God to you, making you holy, making you look more and more like Jesus, convicting you of sin and righteousness, cleansing you from everything, every bit of guilt, every bit of shame, guiding you and directing you. You want to worship, you want to worship the Father, you want to live your life in total devoted allegiance to Him. It's only going to come through the Holy Spirit doing a deep work in your life. But Jesus says it's not just about the Spirit, but it's also those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And we could look at truth as kind of a lowercase t truth. And that's just, you know, what is right, what is, what is accurate, what is verifiable. But when John speaks about truth, he also speaks about it in like capital T truth. And that there is a person of truth. So even Jesus will say this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what he will say is no one gets to the Father, no one worships the Father except through me. So I think certainly we worship in the truth, in the truth of God's word, but, but we worship in the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is. He's the one who mediates a relationship with us and the Father. Without Jesus, we're distant. Without Jesus, we're not even close to worshiping our Heavenly Father.
the only way you worship the Father is through the work of Christ who makes us acceptable to him. If, if all of this is like a lot to take in, I think it was for the woman as, as well. I think she was trying to process this, exactly what Jesus is saying. I don't know that she had it all kind of categorically organized in her mind. But Jesus is taking her to some, some places and, and it's getting very personal for her. It seems like there's like one last deflection where she kind of goes a, a different direction in verse 25. The woman said to him, I, I know, this is what I know, Jesus. I, I don't know about all that you're talking about. I don't know, like I'm not deep theological thinker. I'm not that spiritual. But I know when the Messiah comes, that's the Christ, I know he's going to explain all this to us. And I don't know how much time elapsed, but I can only imagine that Jesus looked her straight in the eyes and said, that Messiah you're talking about, I am he. It's the first I am statement that I see in John. And he says it to this woman at the well. He says, this one you're looking for? To explain it all? You've just met him. You've just met him. And, and again, we, we recognize that her life her life was far from perfect. But we do know this, that her life would never, would never, would never be the same after this encounter. She's getting so much more than she bargained for when she's talking about mountains. When, when she sat down and heard this man ask her for a drink, this is, this is going to change her life. This is going to change her destiny. She has met Jesus And that doesn't mean she's going to become immediately perfect. And that doesn't mean that she won't have a life of kind of rebuilding lots of things. That doesn't mean things are going to get a lot easier. They may have gotten even harder for her. But it does mean she will never be the same. And we know that because she goes back to the town. And she tells the whole town, come and see a man who told me everything I'd ever done. I think he's the Christ. I think he's the one we've been waiting for. And that whole town would never be the same. She realized, she realized this living water, this satisfaction I've been looking for, it's him. And I don't have to earn it. I don't have to cover and I don't have to pretend and I don't have to hide. He knows, he knows exactly what I didn't want him to know. He knows it and he loves me. He knows it and he's still offering living water to me. I think her eyes were opened, and I wonder if yours are as well. Could this day, much like the woman at the well, where she would have no expectation of being encountered by Jesus Christ, could that be for you today? You, didn't, you, just, you just came to church today. And yet, what's happened is you've met him. Not, not just you've heard a sermon, but, but the Lord has met you. Jesus Christ has begun to speak to you. Could this day mark something new for you? Could Jesus Christ be the end of everything you've been looking for? Could this be the day where it's not not just about like you start to go to church. I'm talking your whole life change. Could this be the day where it's not just you develop some Sunday habits, but like everything in your life begins to get reoriented around the person that loves you so much? This is what can happen when we meet Jesus.
For some, though, it isn't really, I'd say for me, it's not about meeting Jesus the first time. Like Wayne shared, that, that for me was years and years ago. But when I encounter Jesus again in this story, and I put myself at the well, and I realize, Jesus, I'm hiding nothing from you. I may have everybody else fooled, but you know me. You know, deep down to the core, you, you know what? I don't want anybody else to find out. And yet you are still making offers like, I can give you living water. I can satisfy you. Then I recognize again, this is my Savior. In all of his grace, in all of his glory. And I come back to him again and again, and my relationship with him is stirred. And I say, this is why I've given my life to you. This is why I want to live my life for you. What I want to do is pray for us today that we would, that many of us, if, if not all of us, but certainly that many of us would have this kind of encounter with Jesus Christ. And we would walk away much like the woman at the well did. Very different for having met this one who loves us so much. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for overwhelming love. I thank you for your son that is just the embodiment of your love. Lord, I confess I am just like this woman. I would much rather deflect and change the subject and have you not talk about this or that. It's so much easier for me to confess or or to cover than it is to confess. So much easier for me to hide. I thank you, Jesus, that you don't let me do that. So here we are, Lord, in full view. You know us. Nothing's hidden from you. But I pray that will not cause us to run from you, but will cause us to run to you. For the person that's not so sure whether they can trust you, I pray that you would do what, what no words of a pastor can do, and that is draw their heart to deep, deep faith. For those of us that have taken for granted what it means to be loved so deeply, by a Savior who gave so much, I pray that today will mark a difference in our relationship with you. That we will know deeply how much we are loved. That this will just fuel worship. This, this will fuel us saying, come see a man that told me everything that I had ever done. Oh, Father, do a work in our church. We're sinners. We're incompetent. We're spiritually not not all stars a long a long way from it but we are we are yours because of what Christ has done draw people to yourself today we ask it in Christ's name amen